Hello and welcome to From Balloons to Drones, the official podcast of BalloonsToDrones.com, where we explore the development of military air power from the earliest days of flight until today. I'm your host, Mike Hankins. And this month, we are marking 50 years since the end of U.S. air power operations in Vietnam and the signing of the Paris Peace Accords that effectively brought the war to an end for the U.S. Of course, we all know that's not the end of the war from a wider perspective, uh, but it certainly is one of the major turning points. And at the 50th anniversary of this, uh, it's a good time to look back and talk about air power in Vietnam. And to do that, I'm joined tonight by Michael Weaver, who has a new work on this topic out just now. It's called The Air War in Vietnam from Texas Tech University Press. Mike, thanks so much for being here. You're welcome. Well, let's just start with the very big picture question first. What is the legacy of the air war, or as some people might say, the air wars, plural, in Vietnam? And why is it worth looking back at them now? I think the... uh... One of the legacies is, well, an incomplete understanding. There's still so much that needs to be uh, looked at, some of it for the first time. I think the positive legacy is uh, the Air Force and the Navy uh, both realized that what they were doing, what they would have been doing to prepare for war really was insufficient and started with their uh, new training programs, the Air Force uh, Operation Coronet Organ and the uh, Aggressor Squadrons, then uh, Red Flag. I really see the uh, the legacy in uh, the 1971 Tactical Fighter Symposium in San Diego, something that I have an article supposed to come out this summer on, where you see the, uh, the veterans of the war who are thinking that they're not going back to Vietnam, uh, realizing that... Uh, this had not gone well and uh, that they're going to be dealing with scarcity uh, in the 70s and younger pilots, and they're going to have to learn from Vietnam so that they uh, are ready for whatever comes next. So I think that was a, a positive uh, legacy as, as far as the air world was concerned. Yeah, you, you mentioned uh, quite a few things there. Um, I want to circle back around to, to all of them. One of the things that I think is really fundamental about this war and and why it continues to attract, I think, historians looking at it is just the questions it kind of forces us to wrestle with, you know, like what can air power accomplish in war? You know, what can it achieve? How do you measure effectiveness in in all these different domains, tactical, strategic, and, and in different environments and looking at the geostrategic situations? And that's something that you kind of raise pretty well in this book. In the in the very beginning you mentioned this and you say that Vietnam's not a failure of air power, but a failure of war. Mm-hmm. And that really jumped out at me. Can you explain a little bit about what you mean by that? Yeah. When you, when you look at the, the ultimate failures, uh, it's, it's more than just a failure of it, of any one component. You know, why did ground power have, have struggles? Well, it was because of not understanding ultimately the political culture uh, and fundamental culture of the Vietnamese and figuring out what would work. That's beyond just a failure of doctrine or tactics or operations. You look at the failures of the Johnson administration, uh, the uh, asinine advice that George uh, Bundy would give at times, and it's beyond a failure of strategy. It's a fundamental misunderstanding. And then you know the uh, you'll see a temptation to, uh, to uh, look at the uh, long-range bombing of North Vietnam, and the first question is: Was it a failure or was it a success for air power? Well, bombers most usually got through. They hit their targets, but it didn't work. Uh, so why? So you, I, I see if 
failures happening more comprehensively in in uh, the, the realm of grand strategy and and uh, policy and and understanding and connecting all those. And so that's a failure of war comprehensively, and not a a failure of of an individual instrument of power or or approach or, or weapon system. Yeah. And that gets into this question, and I, I'm certainly guilty of focusing on the strategic bombing uh, of the North when I would sometimes teach on this or or research it. It's and you're right, I think, to point to a wider focus and even kind of question, you know, what is strategic bombing really in this context? Is that really mm-hmm. even what's happening? Which I think is a really good question we could ask. So how would you look at that kind of bombing effort in the North and characterize it? Well, first, uh, I like to avoid calling it strategic bombing uh, because that is such a loaded term. You know, well, strategic bombing is bombing by four-engine long-range bombers, or it's bombing population centers, or it's bombing vital centers. I separated out into two overlapping missions of long-range air interdiction and air coercion because they're bombing interdiction and materially important targets to try and coerce uh, the North Vietnamese into giving up their vital interests uh, by bombing things that they can afford to lose, which isn't, that's that's another failure of, of uh, at least uh, air strategy, if not war. So that's the way I look at it, is they're trying to do multiple things at the same time, again, without really understanding uh, the, the vulnerabilities of what they're going after or understanding uh, how committed the uh, the communists were to their agenda. I think it, that sometimes it's better to explain concepts through entire sentences rather than words where or, or, or cliches where people probably won't understand what what you're getting at. Right, so, right. Well, I avoid the term strategic bombing <laughs> and try and explain things more clearly. Yeah, no, I think that's really helpful. Um, that is a, such a loaded term and given its history and, and context. But it also raises this question of how to characterize the war generally and how to divide it up because the war is so complicated, right? Mm-hmm. And you've got stuff going on in the South and the North and Laos and Cambodia and you know the different services. And so that's one question I had for you is... Yeah, I think it's a question that any historian that's going to look at this topic has to kind of wrestle with first is how do you divide this up? Um, I always had this weird idea of I, w- I wanted to write a book like this, but go completely chronologically. And I don't know if that would ever work. It's just, but you know, different people have divided it up different ways. You've chosen to divide up how you look at it in a particular way. I wondered if you could explain a little bit about what you think is the most helpful way to understand what different missions and roles air power is performing here? I think you need to start by, we need to cut ourselves some slack and realize that we can't get the whole picture by looking at it from one perspective. Mm -hmm. So you want to treat the war like a a three-dimensional object and you rotate it around to different uh, perspectives and you look at it uh, from different angles. I uh, originally wanted to try and blend a chronological approach with a look at effectiveness, but something about the process of the research and the writing at a very early stage, uh, I realized, okay, you have different air power missions and you have different levels of, of war. And so there's there's not one way to look at it. You can't combine multiple variables into a single variable. So you have to have X, Y, and, and Z, and, and W, and U, if you will, to, to borrow from map. So I decided 
that uh, we'll examine what we can and understand what we can. And so look at things from the policy level through the tactical and individual munition level and break it up into the six, uh, six air power missions and see what happens. Go ahead and list out all those six for us. And uh, yeah. if you could maybe say a little bit about, you know, what, how you judged each one to be working uh, in Vietnam. Yeah, I, I start off with uh, looking at air refueling. Mm-hmm. Um, and because if, if you don't have uh, tankers in Southeast Asia, it's a Navy only uh, war in North Vietnam along the coast. And, and the Air Force really can't participate out of outside of South Vietnam. And I kind of I deliberately overstate my case a little bit by saying that aerial refueling is the foundation of American air power. Uh, then and and now just kind of shake people and get them to stop taking them for granted. The uh, refueling uh, was critical for the execution of the operations, so it supported the American strategy. And the tankers supported the, the president's policy goals. Operationally and tactically, it was pretty easy for them to do. There wasn't a lot of uh, dynamic change in it. The real excitement happened when they would need to save someone. Someone's screaming for gas because they have a leak and uh, a tanker would leave an orbit and go uh, straight towards a, a receiver in order to uh, pass gas sooner, uh, soon enough to uh, sa- save an air crew. Then I look at air superiority uh, next and its effectiveness. And I break that up because that's foundational as well. You don't, you're not going to be striking targets in hostile airspace if you don't have uh, air superiority. And I break that up into how, how do you achieve it? I start off with uh, um, uh, bombing airfields to achieve air superiority. And I found out, I, I always thought that we never got to do that. That was one of the restrictions. And then you, you found all, found all this evidence, all these missions of, of bombing airfields. And then they realized that it wasn't really deciding anything. And then I looked at a second way of achieving air, air superiority, taking on SAM uh, uh, missiles, either through um, attacking them on the ground or, or jamming their signals. And then finally, some of the funnest stuff, uh, shooting down MiGs, and uh, found that it was all successful. But in terms of deciding something, it could only provide an opportunity. Air superiority can't when you have an infinite resupply of MiGs from the Soviet Union and airbase sanctuaries in, in southern China, tactical and operational success cannot lead to strategic decisiveness. Those operations can't overcome those geopolitical facts of resupply by the, the Soviets. Uh, then I'll look at uh, reconnaissance effectiveness. And to my knowledge, no one else has had a chance to look at that. I'll look at it again from the effectiveness of, of cameras and film, and then jets, and then uh, operations, and then uh, strategic uh, importance of it. And you don't you you don't have pictures. You don't know where to bomb. You don't know how good you're bombing. So that was very successful. I also found out that we used drones, autonomous drones, to uh, fly uh, reconnaissance missions over North Vietnam. I had no idea. And I found cases of drones getting escorts by manned fighters over a half century ago. And the president finding drone photography very important and interesting. And uh, General Vogt in 1972 said, I wish I had tactical control of the drones because they're so valuable. 
Then I go into to airlift. Uh, that chapter wasn't as as long as I'd, I'd hoped, but the the official history by Bowers in 1983 is so thorough that'll never be supplanted. But again, the uh, the airlifters were successful individually, uh, and it supported ground warfare operations to the point that they helped decide the course of the war. Uh, in the case of Quezon, the war is going to continue and it's not going to end in a disaster for uh, the Marines because they got to, and came across accounts that I wanted to uh, give credit to of really the heroism of the, the uh, airlift pilots just getting shot to pieces and they don't care. They go in, they land, they pick up whoever needs to be picked up or drop or drop the pallets, and then they come back for more. And and they are just uh, really under, an underappreciated group. Next is close air support. That was executed successfully all the way through the operational level of war. Uh, they're able to get bombs on targets without fratricide being too frequent. But even though they were competent and skilled and successful because it was attached to something that could not defeat the enemy's strategy. That's that's something else that I, I argue is is a def, as a definition of effectiveness. Strategic effectiveness is when you further your own strategy and defeat the enemy's. Airlift and close air support uh, was not able to defeat the uh, strategy of uh, Vietnamese communists, even though it was it, it was uh, very well done. And then uh, finally, I have a, about almost half is on interdiction and coercion in Indochina because I treat the theater of North Vietnam and uh, the sanctuaries in Cambodia and the Ho Chi Minh Trail is really a single theater instead of trying to uh, uh, divide them up. Those were well executed, like all the other missions, but they hoped that they would coerce the uh, Hanoi government to give up South Vietnam. It didn't happen. They hoped to cut off the Ho Chi Minh Trail. They caused a lot of damage, but the uh, North Vietnamese Army was still able to build up supplies for their 1972 invasions. That's a failure. But then it became a success because it took a month to build up anything, and when they continued the interdiction, along with the uh, ground uh, and air campaign in uh, South Vietnam in 72. The combined effect was to really wear down and erode and defeat the North Vietnamese attempt to uh, break South Vietnam, and they came to the peace talks table in, in uh, June and July of 72. So in that different context of support interdiction supporting a, a ground war and high-tempo ground war in South Vietnam, it became successful strategically successful, but it never, none of it ever achieved the ultimate policy goals of the South Vietnamese or, or the Americans. So that's, that's how I break them, break them up. That's really good. There's a couple of roles there I want to go back and talk about a little more. And I like that you talked about the refueling aspect. Like you said, it does not get enough attention, I don't think, as being so foundational and core yeah. to what the Air Force is doing throughout this whole period. It's certainly in Vietnam, but really ever since refueling was invented. Mm -hmm. um, so it, it's really good to see that level of attention being brought to it. But if we could talk a little bit more about the reconnaissance aspect, this is something mm -hmm. that I've been really interested in. You know, the Blackbird, I think, is as popular as the SR-71 is. I, I think people often forget that this is a Vietnam War era airplane. And it's mm -hmm. doing such an important job of getting these reconnaissance photos. And, you know, I came across a quote from 
think it was from Rostow at one point or, or somebody on, on LBJ's advisory team saying that, you know, if it was not for the Blackbird photos, there would not have been any bombing in the North. Uh, that that is what convinced LBJ to, to want to pursue that effort in the first place. But I also love that you mentioned the drones. I have been really uh, on a kick lately, I guess, really kind of diving deep into the use of drones in Vietnam and their development more on the technology side. Mm-hmm. But yeah, could you expand a little bit more about the role that reconnaissance broadly kind of played in this war and the different platforms that are in use? And I'm also interested in not just the photography aspect, but like the signals intelligence aspect mm-hmm. that was so important too. Uh, yeah, the uh, um, reconnaissance drones over North Vietnam, mainly flown by uh, drones, RF-4Cs and RA-5Cs, wasn't able to find much about um, reconnaissance uh, F-8 Crusaders at the uh, Navy Ar- Archive. But they did a lot of mapping, you know, going to suspected places and taking uh, photographs uh, to see what was there. They would uh, fly post-attack missions to uh, look at the uh, the damage of the missions to see if, if uh, um, targets were struck and how badly they were hit. One shortcoming they found was that sometimes a few minutes delay was too late to really get the whole picture, so they started mounting cameras on uh, F-4s to look back at the, uh, the bomb impact uh, itself. So that's that's really critical, uh, you know, for waging an air war, finding targets and evaluating how well the uh, the bombing goes. But with all the SAMs, the, they were a danger to the uh, manned reconnaissance flights because they have to fly along, you know, medium altitudes. You know, they might get to go past Mach one, but when an SA two goes Mach four. Uh, doesn't really matter. So they they were real dangerous. The SAMs really incentivized uh, the use of drones. And the data I found was that about 25% of drone missions were, were failures, either through navigation or just getting shot down. But it doesn't matter because they're, they're cheap, they're plentiful, and, and uh, they don't produce uh, prisoners. I also found that A-12s at first and then uh, SR-71s, they used those mainly to find SAM sites. Uh, because they were less vulnerable. Uh, and they could also use uh, ground mapping radar through the cr- clouds. But it's funny, on, on one of the very first missions, they were had hopes that it would be uh, low observable and not detectable by radars in May of 67. And the North Vietnamese tracked them on the first mission. Yep. But they were able to do things that uh, the slower jets uh, could not. They wouldn't send the RF 101s up north um, because they were well. At first they did, but later on they just they stopped because they were they were too vulnerable and, and supplanted by uh, better jets. I'm convinced the role of reconnaissance is obviously necessary. You're going to be bombing in the blind without it. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, a topic that's really core to this whole concept of reconnaissance, but but also these other roles that you've brought out is. Uh, just the level of technology that we're talking about and how technology changes pretty drastically throughout this period. I mean, think about how long this war is, you know, going from the early 60s to kind of the early to mid 70s. There's so much technological change happening across this war. It's impossible to point to any, to, to, you know, think of this war as being a certain level of technology when the end of the war looks a lot different from the beginning of the war in Mm -hmm. terms of the capabilities of these systems. Um, I wondered if you could talk a little bit about that. I know you mentioned 
precision weapons, and we've yeah. talked about some other things here already. Can you elaborate on how technology is shaping or being shaped by this conflict? Yeah. One more thing on, on reconnaissance. What they, they tried to use these film camera uh, aircraft to help with ongoing battles. And because of the time delay of taking the pictures, developing the negative, developing the print, analyzing it, they're really only use, useful operationally when you didn't need uh, immediate uh, um, information. And they said, what we really need is some, something that will putter around above us that will give a, a high-definition, real-time video feed down to um, uh, battalions and companies. They didn't have the technology. Now, now we do with our predators and, and reapers and so forth. I think the most uh, fascinating advance in technology was uh, the, the laser-guided bomb and electro-optical-guided bomb. Those were so, you know, it's unusual. Usually new technology doesn't work very well. You have to go through a couple of generations, and these were exponentially more accurate with the, the, the very first models of LBGs and, and, uh, and walleyes. So by 1972, when the Air Force started flying its, its linebacker missions, I found out something that I'd never heard of before. It was just fascinating. Pretty much every fighter bomber mission going up north used nothing but laser-guided bombs. You, you would look in, in May of 72, you know, 29 out of 31 missions, laser-guided bombs only. 28 out of 30 in June, laser-guided bombs only. The Navy got in. Most of it was Air Force. The Navy, I think, dropped, I think, four, about 440 laser-guided bombs, and, and, and I don't remember how many walleyes. But the message traffic was just brimming with excitement. We're able to mm. hit the targets finally, the first time from medium altitudes. We don't have to worry about flak. We don't have to worry about collateral damage uh, and, and how that's going to give the enemy propaganda. This is revolutionary. So I'm one of the things I'm arguing in here is that the, the precision-guided munition revolution didn't happen in 1991. It happened in 1972 in Vietnam. Mm-hmm. And they even they actually dropped more laser guided bombs in Vietnam than they did in uh, the Persian Gulf War. Is that right? Uh, Just a sheer yeah. number. Yeah. Wow. Uh, truth in advertising. Uh, I'm not counting the Maverick missiles that were fired. Ah, uh, okay. <laughs> but I'm trying to make a historiographical point that right. uh, no, laser guided bombs were dominant. So oftentimes the only weapon up north in, in 1972. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I had no idea. So I, that was a, a neat, neat uh, finding. Yeah. You mentioned at the beginning of the show, just to loop back around to something you said earlier, uh, you mentioned the fighter symposium of 1971 as being mm-hmm. particularly important. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah, that, that's something I don't know that it makes made it into the book. I found out about it in the course of, of looking at Tactical Air Command in Vietnam. What that was is they had these these symposiums periodically, but this one the the report is thick and uh, very well organized and very well detailed. The thing that strikes me the most about it is the tone, the tone of of defeat, the tone of frustration, the the tone of what we call now emotional maturity. Of look, guys, this wasn't working. We have to do better. 
for this reason, this reason, this reason, and, th- and that reason. And they're, they're starting to look towards the Warsaw Pact. And I'm trying to argue that that was the, the landmark uh, shift in the Air Force's mindset and approach towards preparing for the next war, uh, not, not red flag, not rolling thunder and uh, the, the restrictions. But uh, it has had the feeling of a come-to-Jesus moment for the, uh, the fighter community. So that's to, to me, it shows the the uh, the benefit of just getting in the archives and digging through and seeing what you can find. Because I had no yeah. idea about this, and I, I like to think that it's a, a a new contribution. Yeah, that's fantastic. I, I I agree. There's so much that we don't know what we don't know. We don't know what's yeah. there until we just start digging around and you you find these things that. And I like the way you said that that it was the tone more than anything else that jumped out at you. I think that's. Yeah. Something a lot of folks might not understand that historians kind of deal with when we're digging through these sources and we come across, sometimes it's not the detailed facts or the dates. It's the general sense you get from spending time yeah. reading what these people are saying and just the overarching sense and emotion that that can carry. I think that's really powerful. Yeah, I, I cannot footnote a, a, a single page. Mm-hmm. to um, substantiate that. that I, uh, I read the whole thing. And that's the impression that that I got, uh, and it was it was uh, it really struck me. Maybe maybe someday it can make the whole the whole document available some somehow wider, like the Chico reports are, are online now. Yeah. Well, we have barely begun to scratch the surface of your book, but also the war in general. So there's a lot more that readers can dive into. Um, so I'm, I'm going to end with asking you a very unfair question, and that is, if people could come away with one thing. To understand about the Vietnam War or the air war in Vietnam, what one thing do you want people to understand about the use of air power in Vietnam? That tactical and operational success are critical, but without a good strategy, a comprehensive strategy and understanding of everything, especially in a limited war in a, a different culture by the, the national leadership it's probably not going to defeat the enemy's strategy. Mm-hmm. And that's going to lead to intense frustration because it was well executed and it just wasn't enough because by, by itself it's, it's not sufficient. And I, I'd want people to come away with uh, an understanding of the complexity of this war. Uh, mm-hmm. It's World War II, Civil War, very easy. I get those. This one, I'm still, I still come across stuff like, really? I never came across that before. So yeah. it's it's humbling. Yeah, that's uh, that's a good note to end on. It's humbling. I like that. Well, readers can dive into more and understand that complexity uh, by checking out the Air War in Vietnam. It's by Michael Weaver from Texas Tech University Press. Thank you so much for being here, Mike. You're welcome. I really appreciate the opportunity. Yeah, my pleasure. I'd also remind people that you can buy it probably through your local independent bookseller. That's how I'm getting all my copies now. Yeah. All right. You can find more of me at mwhankins.com and all of us are online at balloonstodrones.com. Our music was created by Jason Davis at Digital Fish Media, which you can find on Facebook at digitalfishmedia.org. Please send us an email or submit an article for us to publish on balloonstodrones.com slash contact. To remind everyone, Michael Weaver's comments are his alone and do not reflect the policies of Air University, the Air Force, or the Department of Defense.
and we will see you all next time. Thank you.